0: Sometime earlier this year, you guys might remember, um, Eric gave a a sermon that it it caught my ear a little bit more so than usual, because I'd been thinking about a sermon topic, which is the topic I'm going to share with you guys today, and in many respects, the sermon Eric preached that day um, was my topic, but he presented a really different perspective on it. And I had just made notes on this topic like a week or two before he gave that sermon. And it was like, oh man, he took my topic. And I think he even maybe disagreed with my position on it. I don't know. So we're going to find out. Um, In some ways, maybe his perspective was a little opposite mine. Um, I don't know. The sermon though, I'm talking about, you might remember, was uh, a sermon he called, Don't Be a Macho Man. And you can find a recording of it on the church website if you care to look. I think it was sometime in May. Um, I listened to it again as I was preparing to um, share this message with you today. And I think, generally speaking, I think for the most part I agree with his sermon. And um, there might be a few finer points that maybe, maybe we could disagree a little bit on. And that's actually interesting because the topic of my sermon today is disagreement. I want to talk about conflict and disagreement today. Those two things, disagreement, conflict, you can put other words with that, they're a part of our life, right? We can't avoid conflicts and disagreements. We can see some forms of conflict in very early scriptural passages even. I think if you were to think about it, I think you could say there was conflict in the Cain and Abel situation, right? I mean, one person doesn't kill another person unless there's conflict of some sort. Cain was jealous and well, we know how that story turned out. Things really haven't changed that much in society. If uh, you look around today, people are still killing each other over really petty reasons at times. We see it every day. You can turn on the news almost any day and find a story somewhere about something like that. It's really kind of out of control as a society. Obviously, disagreements and conflicts, that's not what we desire. Um, In fact, our, our Savior is often referred to as the Prince of Peace, quoting from Isaiah 9. So if we serve the Prince of Peace and we desire peace, why do we sometimes have conflict? Well, the answer is, of course, because we live in a fallen world, a world of sin. I think peace kind of went out the window when Adam and Eve made their uh, original mistake and uh, created conflict between us and God. While we might desire peace, I want to suggest to you that there's also sometimes virtues to fighting. The point of my sermon today is that I don't know if we fight enough as Christians anymore. I'll say that again because that, you know that is the key thing I want you to remember. I don't know if we fight enough anymore as Christians. Now this is where you might find some disharmony between my perspective on this topic and Eric's. I don't think we actually disagree. I think if Eric and I sat down and talked about this, I actually think we'd agree on on this on this matter. Uh, but our sermons approach the topic from two different angles. Or maybe we do disagree. You guys can you guys can be the judges of that. Or, or Eric can let me know later. Um, either way, this is what I got to share with you today. Okay. So you might think, you know, so Ryan, are you seriously saying you want us to fight more? Well, yeah, that, that is what I'm saying. Um, But hear me out before you write me off as crazy. I think if we wisely engage in conflicts, disagreements, fights, whatever you want to call it, arguments would be another word, I think there is benefit to that. Eric's sermon focused more on the idea of not being a person who looks for fights. Now, I I can agree with that. Um, There's no need to portray a tough guy image or try to bully people or, you know, that's all certainly not appropriate. Um, there's many, many, many passages that call us to be peacemakers or to promote peace, uh, things of that nature. Just to list a few, I'm not going to read them, but Proverbs 15:18, Proverbs 16:28, 28, Proverbs 28:25, 28, Matthew 5:24, Hebrews 12:14. You can probably keep this list going if you just start searching through Scripture. I get that. I understand that. Peacemakers, got it. Trying to foster peace, definitely a good thing. But there's plenty of reasonable opportunities to engage in debate and sometimes, if necessary, even perhaps start a fight. I'm not saying that you go looking for fights, right? That That's that macho man thing that Eric preached about. Don't do that. But if the fight comes to you, perhaps you should embrace it and not back down. The idea for this sermon, um, it came about from a conversation that I overheard while I was at a gathering of some extended family members some time ago, probably back in May, now that I think about it, since that's when Eric preached his sermon, there was a group of teenagers there, and uh, some of them were from a very common, well-known religious uh, background, and then there was probably some other religious backgrounds represented there as well. And the topic of church came up in this group as they were sitting around a table talking. And what caught my ear was that there was a little bit of debate that happened within this, this group of teenagers um, with a statement being made that someone they know, I think it may have been a, a girlfriend or something that wasn't there, she attends fake church. Now, in this particular case, I think the fake church being referred to was a local megachurch, um, but that's not really important. Um, you know, and I'm just an outsider hearing this conversation. And I really, really, really wanted to jump into that conversation and understand how you decide which churches are fake and which ones are real. And then I also might have had a few suggestions for ways to help decide on that. But that would have been extremely awkward and probably inappropriate. And I don't know, might have got me uninvited from future family gatherings. I don't know. Um, and maybe there's another sermon in there that I, I maybe will put together someday on fake church. And as I recall that conversation, yeah, it was just a group of teens. That conversation quickly moved on, and, and that was the end of it. But it really got me thinking. Um, in Eric's sermon, he made a statement about how denominations came about because of conflict, where some group of people basically said, "We're right, you're wrong," and then they separated from each other. He then went on to mention how um, denominations don't really seem to uh, fight with each other so much anymore, and They seem to be more accepting of each other these days. And he wished that they would uh, recognize that what they need to do is just drop their denominational names and just be Christians. And there's a lot wrapped up in that. So I I want to think about that for a minute. I do agree that it it would be great if denominations would not separate themselves from each other. That, That would be great. But even more important than separating themselves in name, what they need to do is they need to stop separating themselves in doctrine. And they need to stop separating themselves by creeds. I know that there was a time when believers fought amongst themselves fiercely over matters of doctrine. I think in large part, you know, we can probably say that you could see that really become really visible with Martin Luther and the Reformation movement. There were certainly some strong disagreements around doctrines in those days. Um, And then after that, of course, you know, you get this whole tree of denominations branching off from each other, splitting off from each other, factions going this way, that way, every which way. And that's certainly not the picture of the church that we see in Scripture. Now, the Restoration Movement, on the other hand, attempted to embrace the uh, scriptural picture of the church by reuniting around Scripture and what Scripture teaches. I, I can argue for Eric's point using a number of passages um, the first passage that comes to mind is on, on this topic is the passage that was read earlier by Richard from Ephesians. So I'm going to read that again, Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6. I think it's also in your bulletins. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, that's about as clear as you can get. How many faiths are there? One. There's not many faiths. And we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, how, how could I not? Well, you, it's directly from Scripture. Here's my problem, though. There's two ways that you can have unity and peace. Or, I should say, peace and the appearance of unity. Way number one is really actually easy. Just don't have any passion for what you believe. Done. And the word passion here is important, and I I chose that word very intentionally. Dictionary.com defines passion as, quote, any powerful or compelling emotion or feeling as love or hate. If you have true passion... Christ and the faith that he taught, then it's going to be powerful and it's going to be compelling and it's going to motivate strong reactions. So when the denominations decide to embrace each other and agree to disagree perhaps and and get along, let me ask you, is is that a display of passion or could it maybe be a display of indifference or maybe apathy or, or some word like that? I can't say that I know the answer for sure, but I've got a suspicion. If they truly had passion for what they believed, they'd still be fighting for it. They'd be willing to say to other denominations, we're right and you're wrong. I mean, isn't that doesn't that have to be true? You can tell me I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong about this. They've decided that they would rather join hands and present... The appearance of unity, instead of standing up for their beliefs, and we can see that in the Church of Christ as well. I think, but it does look a little bit different. But it is there. I, I know from history, and you know, many of you, uh, many of you may even have personal memories of this. But it was a little before my time. Um, but it used to be common, I, I believe, for people from the Church of Christ to engage in public debates, sometimes with denominational people. Sometimes with other members of the church. I think that was quite common at, at, at one point in time. But why did they do that? Did they do it because they were enjoying a good argument? Is that, is that, was that their motivation? Did they just like to have a good fight in public? I don't think that was it. I think it was because they had passion for what the Bible says. And they had passion for doing whatever they could do to make sure that people knew the truth. And they wanted people to not be led astray. I believe I can justify such passion and concern for others with scripture. But before I do that, I want to share an illustration that I think really drives the idea of passion versus apathy home. There's a song that's currently playing on on radio stations, and I think it's got a great illustration of this. Maybe some of you have heard it. I'm not going to exactly quote the words because, well, they're not exactly appropriate for me to fully quote here. Um, But the name of the song is We Don't Even Fight Anymore. And uh, it's by Carly Pierce, who happens to be from Taylor Mill, just down the road from here. Um, And the gist of the song is that it's about a couple who they were in love at some point. But now they've just become so apathetic towards each other that there's just nothing really left between them. Not really. Um, The chorus approximately says this. We don't yell, because what difference would it make? We don't cuss, and we don't care enough to even hate. We could tear tear up the house, we could burn the whole thing down, but boy, what for, because we don't even fight anymore. So peace is easy if there's no passion. When the passion's gone, you're not going to have fights. I said a minute ago that I can justify my point with Scripture, so I want to continue in that Ephesians 4 passage. You may want to open there if, if you choose to. I'm going to pick up in verse 11, so Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read three, or three verses or so here, maybe five. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. So as we consider this passage, remember that this is following the passage we read a few moments ago about one body, one spirit, and so on. I want to point out a few things from this passage. First, we once again see unity. Um, it's it's there indirectly represented by the singular body of Christ. And uh, here my mind flashes to first Corinthians one thirteen, which is the passage that says, Is Christ divided? Well the body of Christ is united. That I think we can say that as a fact. That's certain. <clears throat> and the unity is explicitly called out in verse um what place. Oh, in verse thirteen. Uh, With the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Interestingly, interestingly though, uh, there's a few words right before that passage that I just left out. It says, Until we all reach unity in the faith. Well, that's interesting. So, unity in the faith is not a given, it's something that we have to achieve. And how do we achieve it? Well, verse 14 and 15 address this. It says we must no longer be infants. We can't be tossed back and forth by every teaching, nor by people with deceitful schemes. So we have to be mature, and we have to be able to recognize, and I would argue, refute false teaching. Then in 15, by speaking the truth in love, we will grow into the mature body of Christ. What happens today when you speak the truth, whether it's in love or however you may speak it? Does it lead to peace in most cases, would you say? Doesn't seem that way. We live in a culture that really wants nothing to do with truth, seemingly in any sense of the word. Our society encourages people to define their own truth and and then demand that everyone else accept it. When someone does dare to speak the truth in public, well, more often than not, fireworks start flying, right? So Christians, by and large, they kind of start keeping a low profile and being bullied into silence at times. Think back to the song lyrics I shared earlier. If a husband and a wife have relationship problems, and every time one of them shares a thought, a perspective, whatever, a fight ensues. what's what's gonna happen or what can happen? Well one possibility is as the song talked about, eventually there's just no passion left. and then peace is achieved because they just stop fighting because they don't care. could that be some of what we see in both the church in, in both the church and in the denominational world today as maybe some peace through apathy earlier i mentioned that we can see from the time of martin luther the beginnings of major splits between believers but in fact we can see these same things in scripture uh, we know from 1 corinthians 11 that paul had to address divisions in the early church And uh, earlier I referenced 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul was also dealing with different factions that had formed. Um, This leads me to another point that I want to make, and that's that we learn from conflict. How many sections of the New Testament alone can you think of that deal with or result from some sort of conflict? So let's think about this. We've got accounts of false teaching being corrected. We've got accounts of people being ran out of towns. We've got accounts of people being stoned. We've got disputes about what can be eaten. We've got disputes about how to observe the Lord's Supper. The list goes on and on. Those are just things I thought of off the top of my head. And we learn from all of those. In many, many cases, conflict is necessary to correct errors. Certainly there's exceptions, right? We can, error can sometimes be corrected without conflict, and that hopefully would be what happens but it doesn't always happen maybe you can think of some examples from scripture one that I thought of was um, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos that was error being corrected without meaningful conflict but oftentimes, when you address error it's going to require some amount of conflict and I think that's the situation that many of our denominational founders found themselves in if after studying and making good faith efforts to come to a common understanding on some doctrinal matter, you find that you can't agree. Well, sometimes the only option is gonna to be to separate. Much like we're called to separate ourselves from an immoral brother, sometimes we have to separate ourselves from an immoral group. Or an unscriptural group, I'm sorry, that's sounds scriptural group. Now that's sad. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Undesirable. Yeah. But sometimes I think it's necessary. While I would love to see denominations fade away and believers unite around Scripture and be part of the one true church, in a way, it kind of makes me sad to see members of denominations stop fighting for beliefs that their denominational ancestors cared about enough to separate over. If I thought that they were dropping the denominational divisions because they were actually aligning on true scriptural doctrine, I'd be happy about that. That would be amazing. But somehow I don't think that's what's happening. I think they just don't care anymore. They don't, and, and instead they want that feeling of unity at any cost. This, le- this leads me to another virtue of conflict. In order to have what I'm going to call honest conflict, I don't quite know what to call it, I'm going to call it honest conflict rather than perhaps what Eric might call macho conflict, you have to work at it. It takes work. The well-known proverb, um, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another, comes to mind from Proverbs 27. And I think about the times in my life when I learned the most from Scripture the fastest were times where my beliefs were being challenged. There was a time in my life where every single week of Bible class, Sunday and Wednesday, was destined to be a fight. And I was in the minority in that group, having to defend my beliefs on a number of matters. That went on for several years. And during that time, I learned an awful lot. Because I didn't have a choice. I had to. If I wanted to stay in the fight, I had to really know the word. The alternative was for me to just give in on what I consider to be some pretty significant doctrinal matters, like one of them was baptism. So engaging in conflict is a way to force yourself to learn. And we are called to be soldiers, right? Soldiers engage in conflict. If you think about Ephesians 6, where we read about the armor of God, here Paul uh, tells us in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Perhaps you can read that a few different ways, but I read it as we're in a struggle against the powers of this dark world, the world that we're living in today, and against spiritual forces of evil, the spiritual realm. When someone's promoting false teaching, that sure seems like something I ought to fight against. If that's not enough to convince you that we're soldiers at war, consider the well-known words of Jesus in Matthew 10. I want to read a section of this chapter starting in verse 28. Now this passage is addressing the apostles, and I, I understand that. It's not, that. That's who the audience was. But I think portions of this are applicable to us. Matthew 10:28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Does this sound like the apostles were going out on a mission of creating unity? sounds like an awful lot of conflict to me. As time went on, did the apostles have an easy life? Was their life easy because they got along so well with everybody they encountered along their journeys? Of course not, right? We're called to fight. I don't have any military experience, but I'm pretty sure I know the basics of how soldiers train to fight. I think they do it by fighting. Now, that might be through simulations, that might be through drills, that might be through who knows what means they've got today. But then I ask you, how should Christians train to fight? We shouldn't be afraid to have lively conversations and discussions with other professed believers, and even brothers and sisters. Right, if we can't, like one of my co-workers uses the phrase, if we can't mix it up, Um, with fellow Christians, how are we going to be prepared to battle the dark forces of this world? We don't necessarily always have to agree. It's probably not possible. But we should respect each other enough to be able to debate matters, even perhaps passionately, striving to bring us all to a common, proper understanding of Scripture. We shouldn't be afraid of these things. So, my question is, is do you care enough to fight? Are you passionate about your beliefs? Sometimes war is necessary in order to achieve peace. The good news is, is we know Jesus wins the war. And yet, Scripture tells us we're at war. We know the outcome. Jesus has prevailed. But then, what's your role in this war going to be? Are you going to be a soldier for Christ? Are you going to stand firm in your beliefs and defend them boldly? Are you willing to have difficult conversations with those who are lost? Would you be willing to stand up against a brother or a sister if necessary to address error? Or do you just not have that much passion? Finally, though, Aside from the conflicts in this world, there is one conflict that everybody should be especially concerned about. And that conflict is between you and God. The good news is is we know how to resolve that conflict, too. So if you've not been washed by the blood of Jesus through baptism, then the bad news is you have conflict between you and God. And that's something that I would say you probably need to urgently fix. If you have that need, you're welcome to come forward now as we stand and sing.